I'm Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream, a show where I speak with the rare few who make their living in the world of entertainment. Big thank you to Phil Rand and the Comedy Podcast Network. Tom Burns did the original artwork. Diana Lawrence did the original music. Please share with me your thoughts on iTunes. Leave a comment, rate the show, send me an email. You can email me at livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. And my Facebook page is facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. Today's episode, I speak with stand-up comedian and TV writer Bud Anderson. Excellent. Living the Dream. My name is Rich Baker, and with me today, my guest, uh, very happy to have the comedian, the actor, the writer, uh, the power lifter, Bud Anderson. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Bud. Thanks. Nice to be here. You, <laughs> you, uh... You've been you by far of all my guests so far. You have the biggest resume. I mean, I you've written for multiple television shows. You've acted on TV. Um, how long has you like? When did you start being an entertainer for a living? Well, I went on stage as a comic in 1979. Wow! And uh, open mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went full time six months later. Six months. So it's been almost 32 years. 32 years of a career that started six months after the initial step. Yeah, but I was writing stuff when I was 12. What kind of stuff did you write when you were 12? Um, I used to watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Mm -hmm. and I would send jokes to him, and then he never used them. (laughs) They just sent me letters back to said, if you're ever in the Burbank area and you want to see The Tonight Show for free years, you know, tickets. Well, that's nice. But then when I, they opened up a, a Sunday night club, a Sunday night open mic club in Omaha, where I'm from. And um, I went there with my notebooks to sell my stuff to the comedians because uh-huh. I'd never been on the stage as a comedian. I'd been on like talent shows and I was a drummer and I was in bands and stuff. Yeah. But and I was on the Gong Show when I was twelve and stuff. But that was a little kid thing. But um, I, I watched these guys for three weeks and I thought they were I didn't like them. <laughs> and so I didn't want to s- sell or give my stuff to them. Sure. So my sister dared me to go up and I went up. And this, so you were, the stuff you were writing was, was stand-up material uh, that you wanted to give people, and you're like, why not? All right. I like it. Um, so can you take me through kind of the highlights of what went on between in the six months between I st- stepped on a stage for the first time as a stand-up and I made a living at it? Uh, at the time, I had just graduated college. I was an art director at a self-screen company. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I was a subcontractor for him. Yeah. So... They, he'd give me the workload Mondays, Monday mornings, and I would usually finish everything by Wednesday so I could leave. Nice. And then, so Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I would do stuff in the Nebraska area, Iowa, Minnesota, Kansas City, just drive down and do shows. And uh, Are there open mics, or were you getting, like... I start, well, I started getting, like, they're open mics. I would do a couple, and they'd pay you, like, 20 bucks. And then, um, very shortly, I started getting, like, little gigs here and there that were starting to pay like 500 bucks a week and 900 bucks wow. and then um, every time you work a club or every time somebody come to on my open mic club uh, which I ran for all four years after that um, I mean I was in charge of it I wasn't always there but I was in charge of it but as comics would come through town they'd say call this guy call this guy call this guy so it was all connections after a while nice and then um, sometimes I'd have a comic bring me into his city as his middle act mm-hmm and then they bring me back as a headliner. Wow. And so it just, but that was when the boom started, and so everybody was hungry and everybody was looking for comics. In and the 80s? Yeah. Because there were more comedy clubs in the 80s than ever happened, right? Yeah. There was more comedy clubs and not enough comics. Oh, wow. So I started headlining <laughs> right away. 
opposite problem we have today. Yeah. Then it got saturated. Yeah. Like my first really paid gig was my manager, who I have now as a manager, owned a comedy club in Sioux City, Iowa. And I had never done a full week, and he'd never done a comedy club. Neither one of us knew what we were doing. Nice. So he had me do three 45-minute sets each night to the same audience. So I had to do two and a half hours of material, basically. Wow. And I just thought, well, this is normal. And he thought it was normal. And then the, the next week he brought in a comic from Kansas City, and he said, you know, you do three 45s. And, and, the, and the comic said, so you, how much time do you give to change over the audience? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, these people leave and a new audience comes in. He goes, no, same people. <laughs> and he goes, I can't do three 45s. And he goes, well, Bud Anderson did. And uh, the guy said, who's Bud Anderson? So nobody knew what we were doing. And so then he changed it to two 45s, but he changed over the audience. Wow. So one audience would sit there for a two-and-a-half-hour show. I feel like you can barely get people to sit through two-and-a-half hours of opera. <laughs> well, it is. Diff- it was different then, too, because the attention span wasn't as short. I yeah. Mean, with with Internet and stuff, people have gotten a shorter attention span. Sure. Um, so you just, like, I'm a storyteller, so uh, Cosby would tell a five-minute story to do a one-second punchline. And what I try to do is every sentence of my story has a punchline in it, mm-hmm. so I maintain their attention. Even if it's not a big laugh, it's still enough to to keep them there. And have you been based out of, you're based out of Kansas, right? No, Nebraska. I'm sorry, Nebraska. I knew I'd get that wrong. Uh, have you been based out of Nebraska your whole career? No. I lived in New York for a couple of years. I lived in Florida for a couple of years, and I lived in L.A. Redondo Beach for 11 and a half years. I just like Nebraska. Sure. Well, uh, so, okay, um, so you're a touring headliner and uh, when did the, the TV writing gigs, how did how do you go from being a comic to a TV writer? Um, the first one, which was Home Improvement, I knew some of the writers. Uh-huh. And I had worked with Tim Allen before. And, um, On stand-up stages? Yeah, stand-up. And uh, some of the writers sent me in paper mail, in mail, mail, not email, <laughs> scripts to look at to punch them up, to make them funnier to re- rewrite the punchlines. So I did it, and they started paying me, and then after the second year, I started actually writing and submitting scripts. And then one of those writers had a friend who was a writer for the Drew Carey show, and then I knew Drew Carey anyway, because I'd worked with him before. And then Ellen DeGeneres used to open for me a long time ago when she first started, so I knew her. Nice. And it's just people I knew. I mean, it's uh, A lot of the writers for, uh, for um, uh, some of those shows were from Minnesota, and on Ellen, they were from Des Moines, Iowa, and I knew them. Wow. Because that whole kind of Midwest circuit. Yeah, and yeah we all did the same clubs. Sure. Um, and uh, so you wrote for those three shows, and then, but in addition, you've been in, you've been on camera quite a bit. Yeah, but as an extra. Okay. I mean, I was in two TV movies, and then uh, one was America with a K, where the <laughs> Russians take over America. Oh, like, no. Kind of like Red Dawn. Uh, with uh, Chris Christopherson in it. It was a really low-budget movie. Yeah. It was filmed in Nebraska, so they used us. Then I was in um, Heart, Crime in the Heartland, which is a sequel to Boys Town, which was made with Mickey Rooney in the 30s or 40s. But this was the modern version made with Art Carney. And Boys Town's from Omaha. So they did it there, and I was an extra in that. And then... Uh, I had I actually got to say something like uh, get out of the way, so I ended up getting a SAG card out of that. Wow! And then uh, because of that, and I did some commercials, um, local and a couple regional. Um, then I got 
um, uh, Dances with Wolves because it was in South Dakota and I was right there. I got Field of Dreams, which was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which was right there. And um, then I got Minute Work with Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. Sure, yeah. And then uh, Happy Gilmore and um, Election, which was filmed at Papillion, which is where I live. Oh, okay. Wow. They, they used my son's high school. Wow. So, and then uh, I'm trying to think if there was another one in there somewhere. Uh, but basically, it's because I was in the right place. Well, fair, fair enough. Yeah, uh, that's that's what this business is about. And now, how long have you been doing cruise ships? Sixteen years. But well, I did Carnival at first, and mm-hmm. I didn't like it, so I just kind of laid off of them. I do corporate shows, so I was just using the cruises to fill the gaps. So uh, then Norwegian contacted me about fifteen years ago and wanted me to do it. So I started doing Norwegian. So I've been on Norwegian for about fifteen, and then Royal Caribbean and Celebrity for about five. Nice. Uh, now, I also remember you telling me once that you're uh, a champion powerlifter. Not a champion. But well, you're like you ranked in the state or something I'm, like I'm current. As of about 12 weeks ago, I was I won, and I, I won third place in the nation for my age and weight. That's huge. That's, that's, I'd call you a champion for that. But I'm a, but I, right now I weigh 145 pounds. Uh, when I weighed, I used to lift at 215. Uh-huh. And at 215, I wasn't ranked in my city. And at 145, I just tried it one more time. And I, for my, there's not a lot of guys my age that weigh 145. Sure. So it's not like there's that, a lot. that aren't like really sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was. Uh, I just uh, again, I think it was just I was in the right place at the right time. But to be honest, um, you know, your muscles strength is in your tendon, not your muscle. And so when you get smaller, you don't lose a, a lot of strength. You just lose a lot of size. Uh-huh. So I did actually went up in my bench. Nice. So uh, I know I just know you now from working on cruise ships with you. What what else do you do? Like you said you do corporate shows. Do you still tour uh, clubs at all? The only time I do clubs, there's maybe ten clubs in America that I like, mm-hmm. really like, and I'll do them if I'm open. Uh, clubs don't pay very well, um, and they kind of want me to be dirtier, but I'm not really that dirty. Right. Um, but uh, the clubs, it's, I mean, it takes. Even if it's a three-day or four-day club, it takes a week out of your calendar, and it's not, it's kind of a it's not very cost-effective for, for me. Mm. Um, and when I was raising my son, I couldn't tour in clubs because I couldn't drag a little kid around, but sure. I could bring him on a ship. So the corporates are just one night. So I'll drive out or fly out and do a show and drive home or fly home that night. I'm home. Um, there's a few clubs I do that I just like them, and they don't pay very well, but I don't care. I, I like the club. Labor of love. Yeah, and it's um, you know, I've even done a couple of clubs. You know, they say they don't have any, they don't, they don't have enough money to pay me what they think I should get paid, and I say, you know, I'll do it for drinks, just to keep them alive, <laughs> you know, just to help them. Oh wow! Because they're struggling and stuff. We did that in Igby's in L.A. when they were going under, and for like two months, all the comics, I mean, George Carlin, Robin Williams, we all did free shows. Everybody did. Wow! And couldn't keep them alive. It's hard. Um, and you do a lot of charity work, too. I've uh, been working with Make-A-Wish for almost 16 years and Special Olympics for maybe 12 or 13. And I do, every year I do shows for them to raise money, free shows. And then I also work with uh, breast cancer, AIDS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, American Humane Society, and American Heart Association. Is that it? 
<laughs> That's amazing. So with all these shows that you do, uh, and I mean the fact that when you started out you had two and a half hours worth of material, like where do you, how do you write? Like take me through, every comedian is different, but like do you go every Monday I'm going to sit down at five o'clock and write or how does that work? I can't force, I can't, I can't contrive writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some guys can. And I, I mean, I've sat down with comics who are sitting down there with their little notebooks and their little octopus things, and this means this, which is formulated, and, which is okay if it works. But I can't do that. I just see things happen, and I go, that's funny. <laughs> and then I uh, go on stage, and I try to paint the picture with words so they, they see my perception of it. And then if it doesn't work, I restructure it. And after the third time, I'll put it on a burner if it doesn't work for a yeah. while. But usually by the third time, the more you do it, after a while, you start knowing right away if it's going to work or not. Absolutely. But you don't always know the audience. But um, I just, like, I have a, ru- a really old routine about, uh, I was driving through Missouri once, doing a, working for a funny bone, and I passed a Geo Metro with a radar detector in it. <laughs> and I, I just told the audience that, and they laughed, and I said, wow, what an optimist. And that was the joke. <laughs> well, after about six months, that was a seven-minute routine. Wow. It just grew on stage. Because you're improvising, yeah. like, other things on stage? Yeah. What well, somebody make a comment? I was you, Metro. I said, well, what are you going to do, run over me? You know? And, uh, you know, <laughs> and it was a green one. So I said, you know, it's like a, a dumpsters are green. So, you know, he's going to get... Anyway. But uh, there's... I just elaborated on it more and more and more to the point that if you do it too much, it's too much. Yeah. And then um, um, all I wrote on the piece of paper was Geo Radar. That's all I wrote. Mm-hmm. I didn't write anything else down because I know what I saw. And then as you do it on stage, it evolves. You mentioned George Carlin earlier. Like, uh, with him, as, as I understood it, he would write a routine, like, and he would write out every pause, every nuance, everything. So what you're saying is that you, even once you have a joke, it'll still it's still kind of fluid mm-hmm. as far as how you tell it. When I first started writing, I actually wrote everything out verbatim. Mm-hmm. But I, read, I, I write much better than I speak. So I use words like euphemism and, you know, belligerent, and I use words that people don't use in their normal vocabulary when I yeah. write. Uh-huh. So I'd be on stage, and I'm actually was. It sounded like I was reciting my show, which I was. I sure. memorized it, and I say, you know, uh, I don't want to belittle you folks, but you know, da da da. And then I thought, well, this isn't how I speak. <laughs> so I just went up there one day with really not a lot in mind. I knew what I wanted to talk about, and just start talking. And now I get tongue tied a lot which now has become part of my stage presence, that I mess up a lot. Yeah. And so it works to my advantage not to be prepared. I mean, I know it's up here, but I don't know where I'm going to go. If I'm in New York, they like it. If I'm in L.A., they don't like it. If I'm in L.A., they want me to give basically an outline of what I'm going to do. And even if I do, I'm not going to stick to it. Yeah. And I can't. There's no way I can't. Because if the audience reacts in a different way, I'm going to go in a different way. So even though you're a stand-up, you, you're definitely part uh, improviser yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, all stand-ups, I think, I mean, you have to improvise to create material. Sure. But usually you do it at home. <laughs> but once, once you know your act, once you know your material, it's easy to improvise. Yeah. Because you're secure in your material. You know, it's like it's like you're in a, you're in a troop. Once you first meet each other, it's not as easy as once you get to know each other. Absolutely, because the security's there. And uh, once the audience trusts you, you can do a lot more. Oh yeah, even I, I'm sure 
as a stand-up, you get the same movement. As an improviser, you feel that zone and, like, boy, I can do no wrong. Right. And even if you bomb a joke, like, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, if I, I have a joke, if I, if I do it, like, especially a new bit and it doesn't work, if it's just silent, I just let it go. But if they, like, boo or moan or groan or something, I say, you know, when I wrote that, I knew you weren't going to like it, but I didn't know you weren't going to like it that much. <laughs> so I now I have their trust back because I just laughed. I Absolutely. Just so there's always a back door. Do you um, have a stock way of handling hecklers, or do you improvise that? Um, I don't get heckled that often. Part of it is, first of all, I differentiate the difference between heckling and interaction. Okay. If somebody says, that's not right, or you're right, or, or that never happened to me, that's not heckling. Heckling is, you suck, get off the stage, that's heckling. Right, so heckling's interacting negatively. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, heckling doesn't bother me that much. I don't get it that much. I think it's because I speak too fast for them. But um, what annoys me more is if somebody's just sitting at their table talking. Uh-huh. Because it, that really doesn't bother me. But if it bothers the people next to them, then it bothers me. Sure. Because those people are trying to hear me. Absolutely. And I've just said, I've done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's all these stock heckle lines. You know, if I, if I wanted to hear from an asshole, I'd fart and, you know, da 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 I don't come to where you're working and slap the burgers out of your hands or whatever they say <laughs> but i don't want to do stock lines so my favorite heckle line if, what that i created was somebody would heckle me and i would just go what and they usually don't say anything but if they do if they repeat it i sit there for a second and i go i'm sorry what <laughs> and then they repeat it again and i go okay j- just one more time <laughs> and the more they repeat it the dumber they sound That's I'll, I'll say that 25 times if i have to and pretty soon they keep saying it and saying it. And pretty soon they go, nothing. And I go, that's what I thought. And they go, oh, you heard that. And I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that way I haven't said anything bad to them. I've just made them dig a hole. Yeah. The, worst, wow. the hardest is a woman. If a girl heckles, you have to be, as a man, as a male comic, you can't nail her too bad. Sure. Unless that's your style or something that everybody's expecting. But if you nail her too bad, every girl in that room now hates you. And every guy wants to be her hero. Right. So you have to be really diplomatic about it. I had a girl in Kamloops, British Columbia one time, and she was heckling the opener, and then she heckled the middle, and then I started doing my show, and I was talking about my son. And she was talking through everything, and real cute girl. And she goes, how come you don't talk about your wife? She just yells at. And I said, well, we're not together anymore. And that's not part of this bit. She goes, well, that figures. And I go, what do you mean by that? She goes, oh, you comics, you go to all these towns and you sleep with all the girls and you never call them back. And I said, I didn't say she left me. I said, we're not together. My wife died. And everybody looked at this girl. And I said, my wife was killed by a drunk driver. Are you drunk? And she's, she's just looked, she's actually started like, her eyes started welling up. And she oh, goes, geez. She goes, I didn't know. And I said, I know you didn't know, but you still think you know about me? I said, I'm not one of these guys that goes town to town and sleeps with all the chicks. Maybe you're one of those girls. Maybe you're mad because a comic did that to you. But it wasn't me, was it? She goes, no. So after the show, she came up and apologized. And I said, don't worry about it, you know. And I said, you didn't know any better. And so and then she walked away and the other acts and the manager came up and said, I didn't know your wife died. And I said, she didn't. She left. <laughs> but it's my show. And I'm not going to lose control over her opinion or her assumption of what I am. Uh, yeah. Because it's wrong. And that's... Does it, uh, I, I, I don't, I'm afraid to, to almost, uh, this will come off offensive, but like, obviously you've worked with, I could probably name 10 comics that I know of, and then you you could probably say you've worked with 
eight of them because you've worked so long and, and for so long. But has it ever bothered you or affected you in any way, like you working with someone who, like you even said that uh, Ellen used to open for you. Does it bother you that she's successful? Does it, are you proud of her? Like, mm-hmm. I've never wanted to be a TV star or a movie star. I don't want to act. I don't like acting. I feel very fake when I act. Acting is fake. I mean, you're being somebody else. I want to be me. So I don't care. I'd rather write a show than be in it. And, like, when my friends, like, when Drew got his show and stuff, my mom was like, uh, does it bother you? And I said, no, because I know Drew. So now if I have an idea, I can go to Drew. And he can help me. Sure. See, the only thing, when I do seminars on comedy, I I always ask the comics, how many of you want to be famous? And they would, and and then I say, why? Why do you want to be famous? Well, you have more money. I said, well, most rich people aren't famous. And, well, you you have more friends. Well, then they're not your friends if it's because of fame. No matter what they say, there's, I can't, it has nothing to do with wealth. Mm -hmm. So I, and there's a lot of rich comics and rich people. Well, there's a lot of rich comics that aren't famous. Sure. A lot of them. And so uh, I say the only thing I can think of that, that fame can give you is notoriety. So if I'm famous and I have an idea for a movie, I can go to somebody and say, hey, it's me, bud, and they know who I am, and they'll look at it. Sure. But if I'm not famous, I know famous people, so I can go to them. There you go. And they can do that for me. And I'll split with them, you know, the money or whatever. I don't care. But that way, I, don't, I can walk through the mall and nobody bothers me. And not, not, I mean, I like people, but I've seen famous people who just can't do anything anymore. Yeah, can't go to concerts. Yeah. Can't. I imagine that if a famous person tried to take a cruise like this, that'd be almost impossible. Well, you know, I've been on some Norwegian ships, like when Reba McIntyre was on one, and it was on the Star, and there's a, there's suites, and she had the suites. Well, she was basically up there all the time. She hardly ever left her room. Oh. Because she can't. Because people would hound her. Hmm. So, and then when she, on the last day, she actually went to the carousel, which is the karaoke bar. And she sang one of her songs. <laughs> and she had guys around, like her, body, her bodyguard guys, but they're mm-hmm. dressed like cowboys and stuff. And the DJ said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest, Reba McIntyre. And she sang one of her own songs. And, you know, everybody's applauding. And there was two ladies at the bar, and she goes, sounds like her, doesn't look anything like her. Like, <laughs> that is her. Oh, it is not. Yeah, well, it was. You know. So, you know. And I've been, you know, I've been with Larry, Dan Whitney, Larry the Cable Guy, is a friend of mine. And, uh... There's been times when we've gone out and he has to, like, wear a, he has to dye his beard and he has to wear sunglasses and he has to wear, you know, take his hat off because without his hat he doesn't look like the same thing, wear sleeves and stuff. Sure. So people, primarily, so they won't bother his daughter. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I had lunch with John Stewart a while back because I worked with him in the 80s and 90s with, at MTV's for spring break. Him and Ken Ober and Colin Quinn and stuff. And so... I had lunch with him in New York a few years ago, and he said he didn't want to go to lunch because nobody would let him eat. Because they'd so, constantly hound him? Yeah. So he showed up with a hat on, sunglasses, a fake mustache, and we ate. And I had been on Comedy Central on an old taping thing and uh, that was from MTV, I think, or something. And these girls come up and said, can we have your autograph to me? <laughs> and I go, why? Weren't you on Comedy Central? Yeah. So I signed it, and I said, do you want his autograph? And they looked at him, and they go, who are you? And he got mad, and not to their face, but when they left, he goes, how can they not know who I am? And I said, you just said you didn't want anybody to know who you were. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to be famous, that's great. But I don't, you know, I don't see, I don't see any benefit. Fair. 
Uh, is there you, you've written for three major uh, television shows? Is is that something that you want to do more of? Uh, I don't know if like you obviously did it a little while back because those shows haven't been on the air in a while. But uh, did you stop because the gigs weren't coming, or because you wanted to, or want to pursue other things? Or well, they started looking. If you if you notice, a lot of sitcoms in the last few years basically it's the same premise outline. It's a formulated series. Sure. The first third of the show is. Basically, somebody has a problem, another party hears part of the problem, perceives it as a different problem, tries to fix it, which creates the third problem. The middle part is all the problems being mixed up and, and sol- some being solved, but new ones. And then there's always an underlying story where one keeps coming into the picture. You know, she said yes, she said no, she said there's an underlying <laughs> story just to keep it flow. And then at the end, all the, everything's resolved. Right. And at the very end, the guy with the underlying story comes in and he goes, she turned me down, you know. So it's it's basically the same formula, everything. Um, and uh, you know, then when Seinfeld set the new precedent with his thing, and then now everybody started kind of trying to copy that. Yeah. So uh, there's they start looking for younger writers, and what ha- which is fine, but it, a lot of younger writers haven't experienced anything in life, so sure. they can they only talk about so many things that they know about, and so a lot of the themes are kind of generic right now. But I'm working on some stuff right now, and I have some people looking at some stuff. Have you ever? Uh wanted to like create your own TV show or your own movie and like pitch that kind of thing I've written seven screenplays never done anything with them I've had over nine I think I've had nine ideas for sitcoms and I have one being looked at now um, I don't care if I'm in it there are parts I could be sure but I don't care um, I also write music and uh, I even have a couple ideas for like game shows or I have an idea for a political show that's, but it's not a really a political. It's a debate show, mm. but I'm sure the, the subject, I guess, could be anything, but it'd be a debate show. Wow. Um, and I'm actually, I've actually talked to a friend of mine who's in this business who is interested in that now too. Wow. Good luck on that. One thing that I like to ask all my guests uh, is if. In a world, a hypothetical world, that would be a horrible place, but in this hypothetical world, if I took away comedy and music and acting and those jobs just simply were not available, if you had to get a job that uh, isn't in the biz, as I like to say, what would? Uh, is there any career out there that you would be happy with or would be okay with or wouldn't, you know, tear your hair off? I, I, I say that ironically, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. Um well, I've always been creative, so I mean, one of my degrees is art. Mm-hmm. I probably would, wouldn't make any money as an artist, but I would do it. Um, if I couldn't do, if I, if I, outside of this business, uh, I always liked cars, mechanics. I could do that, be an auto mechanic. Um, I like. Uh, I used to own a gym. I could do that and be a trainer which I am anyway, nutritionist, which I am anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, there's lots of stuff, you know. If I just had to pay bills, I'd do whatever I had to do. Sure. Uh, there's no ego involved in it. And with me, it's a bald ego, so you have to respect <laughs> that. I'm on my way, friend. I'm on my <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, it's, thank you for coming on uh, the show. You uh, wonderful comic, uh, TV writer, actor, power lifter, uh, Trainer, nutritionist. Um, any other titles you want to throw in there before we? <laughs> a uh, 
chronic liar. Chronic liar. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, uh, no, I, I, no. I just, you know, I have a friend who owns an advertising company that's I've known for thirty years, and uh, he always told me he goes, "You have too many things going on at one time." And I said, "But they all work." Yeah. So, like, you know, today I worked on some music, then I worked on um, some. Um, I write for other comics, mm-hmm. so I worked on some of their stuff. And then I worked on uh, an idea that I have for a piece of furniture. That I'm designing a piece of furniture. For <laughs> but, but I'm always working. I'll, I'll work on something, then I get tired, so I'll work on this for a while. And then I'll come back to this. And then, you know, during my shutter night, I'll probably think, you know, when I'm on that one song, if I just raise the strings up one octave, it'd probably sound better. So when I go back to my room, I'll change. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll move that all up one octave. And, no, that doesn't sound right. You know. But I'm always thinking of something else at the same time. You're like a juggler of a thousand different arts. Yeah. In fact, when I was married and with my last girlfriend, there was times when I'm working. Like, I have five routines that are here right now that aren't ready for the stage that oh. I've been working on for, like, three or four months. One's about six months. But they're always here, and I'm just waiting for it to happen. I mean, that's how I kind of work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I start doing it on stage without knowing where it's going, and sometimes it works. It, just, it happens. But I'll have... I'll ha- I always have something I'm working on in my head. And there was times when I was married and when I was dating my last girlfriend that we'd be in bed in the throes of passion. <laughs> and right in the middle of it, I'd go, oh! And they go, what? And I go, I have to write this down. Right <laughs> <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> because if I don't, I'll forget it. <laughs> and they're like, you're thinking of your show? No, you inspired me. You're, you inspired. You're my muse. You're <laughs> but I was working. <laughs> you know Kevin Meany, who he is? Yeah, yeah. I worked with him a few times but we were in Reno one time and he just asked me before the show he goes where were you before this and I said back in New York and he goes who'd you work with and I named a couple guys and one of them I couldn't think of his name but I, I knew him really well I just couldn't think of his name and I said you know him we worked in Queens the other and he, and he goes I said he does this bit and he goes oh yeah 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 and I said what's his name and he goes I don't know I can't. and neither one of us could think of this guy's name <laughs> so I'm up before him and I'm doing 40 and he's doing an hour okay and this is Vegas so or Reno so um I'm doing my show, and I'm an audience is good audience. And about 20 minutes into the show, I said, Jonathan Solomon. And he goes, yes. And the whole audience went, what? <laughs> and it didn't throw me. I just kept talking. But it's still there all the time until it comes out. Wow. Uh, awesome. I like it. Uh, and, and I hope if someone's listening to this podcast right now that that inspires them to remember something that they forgot earlier. <laughs> you know, one of the most common questions I get in my seminars when I do seminars for comics mm-hmm. is they always go, have you ever forgotten part of your show? And my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> they go, what do you mean? I said, how would I know if I forgot it? Well, because then later you remember, well, then I didn't forget it. <laughs> because I don't plan my shows that much, so I can't forget it. Well, sure. But there's been shows where I've done it, and at the end I said, you know, I should have done this, should have done this. Yeah. I had an opening right there, I should have done that instead. But, you know, that way it's... Now, in theory, uh, once I garner an audience on this thing, a lot of the uh, people who be listening to this podcast are uh, either aspiring actors or current actors or aspiring comics. So a lot of people might be interested in your workshops. Do you have a website where they can go and... I don't actually do workshops myself. Oh, I see. But if I work for, like, Yucks, Yuck Yucks in Canada or The Funny Bone mm-hmm. or Punchline, they have all the headliners do this now. Oh, okay. So it's usually Wednesday. Sometimes it's in the afternoon. Uh, you go in, like... At three, and they'll bring in all their open micers, and all of them, and just whoever wants to come, and they each do like five to seven minutes in front of me, and then I 
if I like it, I say I like it. If I don't like it, I say, well, try saying this instead. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes they're in the wrong order or whatever. You know, they, don't, they haven't figured out how to structure their show. Sure. Sometimes they don't know how to use a mic. I mean, they're all over the world where they keep it in front of them on a stand, which is a barrier. And, you know, there's things you have to learn. Work a stage. Yeah. And uh, and then on the end, I, I talk about business, how, how to talk to agents, how to talk to managers, how to invest money, how to save 10 to 15% of what you're making so you're not broke in 10 years. Right. Um, don't mess with the wait staff, especially on the first day because you're going to be there all week. And there's going to be another one walking the door, and then you got to deal with the wait staff. You know, things like that, just etiquette. But they do ask me about writing, and my whole thing on writing is you have to write the way you are, the way you are. I mean, if you want, you don't. If you're dirty, and you, I don't care if you're dirty, I care if you're funny. Yeah. So, but you know, if it, I when I first started, I was trying to emulate Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart and and Steve Martin, and then after about. Eight months. I've, one time, I just did me, and it came out better. And I found out I was just best to be me. Nice, awesome. Well, uh, thank you again for uh, coming on. And uh, I haven't come out yet, but well, fair enough. <laughs> but Anderson, this is living the dream. <laughs> yes, it is. Huge thank you to Phil Ranton, the Comedy Podcast Network. Original artwork by Tom Burns. Original music by Diana Lawrence. Drop me an email, livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes. Leave a comment. I love all the feedback. Thank you very much. Find us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. You can see pictures of people that I have interviewed and information about it. Thanks so much for listening.